the new ones that they might want. So uh, that is the plan, apparently. I don't know whether it will come to pass uh, or whether it will be a start of something that will grow bigger and bigger. But that ap- that appears to be the plan, and whether it has some more Las Vegas-type happenings or something worse remains to be seen. But <clears throat> something to at least keep in mind and be aware of and know that we already know trouble is coming. It's just the exact form and how it takes place, because if they manage to get a big enough rebellion and revolution going, uh, that means you're not going to be traveling much of anywhere, uh, because it won't be safe to be away from where you might be, and it'll certainly get unsafe in the cities. So it, it bears watching, at least, and whether or not this is what sets it off or whether it is not. But when I read all that I've read and see that it's possibly upon us, it's my job to warn you and let you know that uh, it's a possibility, and then we'll see. But be, be, awake, be awake, be aware, be alert, and at least we know where we'll be on the Sabbath. <laughs> we'll be home, and we'll be here. So if they start stuff, you won't happen to be at the mall shopping that day. <clears throat> but you'll have some warning about what might and could be coming down the pike. Let's go back to Ezekiel again today. <clears throat> we went through chapter 16 last week, which is a pretty long chapter, showing the whoredoms against God that Israel has perpetrated, how they've set up idols, and the church, of course, uh, along the same lines, was not the kind of woman that Christ wanted to marry. So she has been decimated, and the nation is about to be, as Ezekiel 16 points out. Then we come to 17. I went through this in detail recently, I think at the Feast of Tabernacles, showing that this riddle and this parable uh, is speaking of the church primarily, and how... Uh, a leader came with long wings. It was a, a pretty good-sized organization and took peoples of all different colors or, or feathers, different nations around the world, and it was set up in a land of traffic in Los Angeles and how he intended it to be a great cedar tree and it turned into a vine and its roots turned to the leader who was Herbert Armstrong and then... Uh, he made a covenant with Joe Koch, and that covenant was broken. And then he took it into Babylon and uh, made a mess there. Then his son made it worse, going further into Babylon. And I won't go back through all that. You can go to the feast sermon and hear it more, or the last time I went through Ezekiel, I went through this, and that's been what, seven, eight, ten years, I suppose, since that happened. But uh, this parable and riddle becomes pretty obvious. I want to go back for a moment, though, to the end of the chapter, because it will have impact as we move forward here, even in the book of Ezekiel, with another reference to what God describes here. So what is happening worldwide, then, is essentially past. Then taken into Babylon and pretty well destroyed there. 
But God says He is going to do something after this history that we have just witnessed. Verse 22, Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar, and I will set it or plant it. So God is going to take a twig from those who remain, and He is going to get uh, the best that is available, a branch of the high cedar, the, the, the best that he can find and, and use. He says, I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So a, a mountain that is uh, not only high, but is of importance or imminence. Well, what's more important and more imminent than the hill of Jerusalem or the towers of Zion and Mount Zion uh, in the promised land. And it shall bring forth boughs, not vines, but branches, and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. Now, a cedar tree doesn't bear apples and peaches, uh, but this is uh, an analogy or an imagery. It bears cedar uh, berries, but the main thing is it will be fruitful. It will produce. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches there shall they dwell. So uh, people can come and they can find safety and security underneath what God is going to plant and cause to grow. And all the trees of the field shall know. Now trees are men, trees are churches in biblical prophecy. So it says all the trees, all the peoples, all the churches, go to Isaiah 41 where he says he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness, and that again will come to light here in a couple of chapters again. He uses the same analogy. And all the trees of the field will know that I the eternal have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, and have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So that which was green, uh, which was there, will be gone, and then he will plant a twig where that which was alive died, and it will replace the dead tree. Uh, there again, I think worldwide was Sardis, and became a dead tree. And basically has died out. But what God is going to plant that will grow out of that which was green and has died, something that will flourish. Now let's go to 18. <clears throat> we'll see some of the judgment of God here and how God judges. There's a lot of meat here to consider uh, and to let us assess our lives we can go back to chapter 14 where he shows that there is a great deal of trouble coming and that only if Joah, Noah, Job, Noah, and Daniel were here, they could only save themselves. So it's an individual judgment God is going to make. It's not going to be a judgment of this group or that group or another group. It will be an individual judgment God will make on all of us. He says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape what's coming. Not your group, uh, but pray that you will. Not that we don't pray for each other, I don't mean that, but the point is God is going to make an individual judgment on all of us. 
He made that very, very clear in chapter 14. Now let's see what he says again in 18. The word of the Eternal came to me again, saying, What do you mean that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, when you eat something sour, it sets your teeth on edge, right? Somebody across the room, it doesn't set their teeth on edge. Maybe if they smell it, it could a little bit. But it's your teeth. So, why do you say that there's impact from one to the other? Someone eats sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the eternal God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Spiritual Israel is the primary uh, thing being considered here, but it will also apply to physical Israel later on. So he says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. Your Son isn't ultimately your Son. He's God's Son first and primarily. Now, you may be related by blood, but with God, you're related by creation, which is a closer relationship. So he says, the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. The one that sins, not anybody else, not someone else. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right... And then he goes and names some uh, circumstances. But the point he's making is, you are not responsible for anybody but yourself. Your son doesn't matter. Every soul that sins, it will die. The law will take hold on sinners. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right, and is not eaten upon the mountains neither has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither has defiled his neighbor's wife, neither has come near to a minstrel's woman, and has not oppressed any, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has spoiled none by violence, has given his bread to the hungry, and has covered the naked with a garment. Well, there's a pretty good summation of the Ten Commandments, along with a lot of the statutes and judgments that God made in the Old Testament. showing righteous behavior. He continues a bit more. He that is not given forth upon interest or usury, neither has taken any increase, that has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, has executed true judgment between man and man, has walked in my statutes and has kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, says the eternal God. (coughs) So you can go from verse 5 down through verse 9 and see that if you do these things, you're going to live. You're not going to die eternal death, but you will live eternally. Because that's that's the terms of the new covenant. And he's speaking here in an end-time prophecy of those of us who live today. So he's speaking of the spiritual eternal covenant here, as well as the ancient physical covenant. (laughs) Now, verse 10, If he beget a son that is a robber, a murderer, 
and that does the like to any one of these things, and that do, does not any of those duties, but even has eaten upon the mountains, that's not wrong to go up and have a picnic on the mountain. Uh, what it's referring to is going up to high places where they tended to have their idols. The, they stripped the branches off of trees in order to make phallic symbols in their, what they call the groves up on the mountains. If you look around here in the area, you don't see many trees like that growing down low. You have to get in higher elevations, then you see the trees. So that's where they made their groves and worshipped their idols. So it's idolatry he's talking about there. Uh, and has defiled his neighbor's wife, has oppressed the poor and needy, has spoiled by violence, has not restored the pledge, and has lifted up his eyes to the idols, and committed abomination, has given forth upon usury, and has taken increase. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So he says, you, it doesn't matter what you are. Uh, if you've been righteous, you'll live. But if your son sins, he will die for his own sins. The soul that sins, it shall die. It's repeated twice in this chapter, verse 4 and verse 20. <coughs> so he makes it very clear that it is an individual responsibility. Again, going back to chapter 14, Noah, Job, and Daniel could save no one but themselves. Your righteousness will not spread to anyone else. Uh, okay. Verse 18. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed and spoiled his brother by violence and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. And yet you say, why? We, we always question God, don't we? We ask, why do you do this, God? Why do you do that? Why don't you do what I want? Does not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? In fact, we even read in some of the uh, rules back in Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, and so on. I think, am I quoting the right area where it says that uh, the sins will be borne by the, to the third and the fourth generation of the fathers and sons? Uh, that's true. When you have a family that's all messed up, then very frequently the children of that family, father, mother, who don't have their ducks lined up, tend to have the same problems that their parents might have had. And this can go on for two or three generations where a family is just a mess. You see another family where maybe the parents were upright upstanding, and their kids and their grandkids tend to be the same way because that's the example, the role model that they have. So, yes, there is effect and influence down through the generations. I mean, look at the generations of Israel. God said that those original sons of Jacob would have the same characteristics many generations down the road. So we can read Genesis 49 and we can use that to kind of examine the different nations of Israel and kind of help place where those tribes are because of the way their fathers were. 
So there is an effect down through the generations. But the judgment is different. The judgment does not come on the second, third, and fourth generation of those that sin. The judgment comes on that generation, the one who sins. There's a difference between effect and judgment. My sons, my daughters, might be affected by my actions, but they are judged by theirs. Now, I might be partially responsible for the way they are, and therefore their judgment might come as a result of me and my weaknesses or my strengths, whichever way it might be. But it's based on what they do, not what I did. So you're not saddled with your father's or your mother's sins. Uh, theirs are their sins. You stand alone before God. So let's not mistake uh, or think that there's a contradiction there. It's, it's a matter of, of effect or judgment. Anyway, you say, why? Does not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? So that's what they might have thought from some of those scriptures in the past. But God says, that's not the way it is. That's not the way it's going to be. When the Son has done that which is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes, and has done them, he shall surely live, no matter what his dad did. Uh, oh, I was quoting from Deuteronomy 5. I've got it here in my uh, margin down to the third and fourth generation. But we're the last generation of this age, aren't we? That's another factor here. Uh, what's happened to your grand, your father and your grandfather and great-grandfather uh, has nothing to do with the judgment that comes on this end-time generation. We are being judged by what we do. And he said this generation, this end-time generation, would not die out until these things all come to pass. Which generation? The ones called in the worldwide church of God. So judgment is now upon the house of Israel. So he reiterates in verse 20, The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wickedness, wicked shall be upon him. Now that should be encouraging, because you don't have to answer for anyone but you. So if you get your conduct right, then God will judge you on that right conduct. Very, very personal here. Then he goes on to explain what about us. That is, what about you? He says, you're only judged by you, that's all. Now let's talk about you a little bit. If the wicked will turn from all his sins that he has committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. But God is making a promise here, that no matter how wicked we may have been, if we turn from that, and stop the wickedness, we will not die. We will live. 
Now, there's where Christ's sacrifice comes into play. He died so that our sins might be forgiven, and we will not have to be accountable for them, and we can live. But now, if we continue to sin, uh, that's a whole different matter. So, if you turn from your wickedness, verse 22, all his transgressions that he has committed, they shall not be mentioned to him. That's a very encouraging phrase to me, that no matter what I may have done, no matter what I may have been at any point in life, if I repent and change and quit doing wickedness, then God says, He'll not even mention my sins. You don't get that with human beings, do you? If people learn what your sins or your alleged sins are, they will mention them to each other and maybe to you too. But God won't. He says, once you change, once you're not that way anymore, He will forgive you through the blood of Christ and He'll never mention it again. Won't it be neat that if we are alive and remain when Christ returns, or if we're dead in our grave? that when we come up, our sins will not even be brought up. We'll simply rise to meet Christ in the air. The judgment will have been made, that our sins have been forgiven. We'll be glorified and be ever with Christ and the Father. Well, not ever with the Father, ever with Christ, because He comes and goes uh, there here in the end time. The Father stays there until He comes here. But we'll ever be with the Bridegroom. <clears throat> and with the Father once He comes down. People don't picture that. They picture the sheep and goats analogy, which is in the Bible. But when He sits down to judge who's a sheep and who's a goat, He's talking about the millennium and the great white throne judgment. He's talking about a period of time in which you were judged. You don't just come out of the ground and suddenly He starts saying, you're a sheep and you're a goat and the great white throne judgment. He doesn't make that kind of a judgment. Everybody would be goats, wouldn't they? Everybody's in the great white throne judgment? As soon as they pop out of the ground and enter the great white throne judgment, they'd be judged as goats. What about those who are left from the Holocaust here at the end going to the millennium? If when Christ comes back, He starts immediately saying, you're a goat, you're a sheep, near about everybody around is going to be a goat. They've been sinners. They just survived the Holocaust. The, the, the flock of sheep would be pretty small. They, they will have been changed and be with Christ. So he's talking about a period of judgment. Now, how did Paul put it? Judgment is now upon the house of spiritual Israel. <clears throat> Are you judged instantly? Let's say you come into the church and you're judged the first day, maybe just before baptism, you're in trouble. <laughs> no, God gives us time, doesn't He, to make a judgment? Doesn't He talk about a space to repent? Doesn't He talk here about the wicked turning from His wicked way to righteousness? So there's a period of time given 
And he sits and watches during that space of time, perhaps a hundred years in the millennium, according to Isaiah 65, in which you will be judged on a lifetime. And if you've been bad and you turn good, then everything will be fine. But if you've been good and you turn bad, oh, we're, not, we're not there yet. We'll get there here momentarily. So it's a period of time. Everybody in the millennium will see the kingdom of God set up, and they will be given time to live under the right conditions, and all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11 tells us. That means the goat pen is going to be very small, and the sheep pen is going to be very large. But if it was an instant judgment, it would be just the other way around, right? So God has a plan to save most. Now, he says there will be weeping and mashing of teeth, so there will be a few goats. But most all Israel will ultimately be saved once they have a chance to live under God's way. Now, we are given that chance now. Our judgment is now. But God is judging you over a period of time, isn't he? Some of us have been here, been in the church for 40, 50, 60 years. It's a period of time. And we've been up and down, haven't we? We've had better days and worse days. We've had some sins and some better days. We may have had periods in our life when we weren't any good at all. We may have repented of that. We may have some be good right now, but you going to fall off the wagon tomorrow? I don't know. I hope not. God sits back, ponders the heart, judges our life, and when Christ returns, judgment's already been made with us. It's now upon the house of spiritual Israel. So what you do right now, day to day, God is pondering and making up his mind whether you'll be part of the bride of Christ or won't. And if it's decided that you will, you'll rise to meet him in the air. He'll not say a thing about your sins. Not one word will be mentioned. And you will not be allowed to tell anybody else about each other's sins either. Because if they're not going to be mentioned to you, then they're not going to be mentioned by God. And he will make sure that everyone who's there will have the attitude that they will not mention them either. If you're going to be an accuser, you won't be there. It's just that simple. Just that simple. So if you're an accuser now, you better get over it, because that will not be allowed in the kingdom of God, and you might go in the goat pen at the time of the first resurrection and be waiting for the third, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, <clears throat> if you repent, your sins will not be mentioned. In his righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Then God gives us an insight into his character. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Now you listen to a hard rock Southern Baptist minister, and God's going to get you for everything you do. He's just sitting there waiting for you to sin so he can get you. That's the way they try to scare people into righteousness. Just tell them that God's going to get you if you sin. 
Well, God is not there to trip us up. He's not just waiting in glee to see us sin so he can destroy us. It's not his attitude. Whose attitude is that? That's Satan's attitude. So they try, uh, the ministry of Satan, try to take Satan's attitude and apply it to God. And that isn't God's attitude at all. He says, do I, do I have any ple a pleasure that the wicked should die? And not that he should return from his ways and live? No, God wants us to live. We're his children. How many of us as parents want to see our children disobey and die? We, we raise that kid. We get him up to three, four, five years old. And we hope he'll run out in the street and get run over. No. We don't think that way at all, do we? We do everything we can to teach him not to run out in the street. I mean, we joke about go play on the freeway, but that's not what we mean. No, we want that child to live. We don't want him to die. Well, God created us. We're his children. He wants us to live. So God's all for you, okay? We get down on ourselves, we get out on each other, but God's all for us. He wants us to turn it around, change, and live. That's his whole attitude. He wants all his kids to survive. But when the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. So it won't do any good to say, well, wait, wait, I used to be righteous, God. No, your righteousness won't be mentioned either if you turn wicked. So it's both ways. If you are a sinner and you turn to righteousness, your sins will be not be mentioned. But if you're righteous and turn into a sinner, then all the righteousness you ever did will be forgotten. It's not where we are, but where we wind up that counts. In his trespass that he has trespassed, and in his sin that he has sinned, in them shall he die. <coughs> but we have to gainsay God. We have to second-guess him. Verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the eternal is not equal. Or, in modern parlance, we might say, God isn't fair. Or, I have some questions. <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure I like the way God does things. Uh, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Well, this isn't fair, God. Same thing as saying the eternal is not equal. He's not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal and unfair? Who, who really is unfair? Is it man or is it God? Now, why would you say God is unfair? Because if you've been doing good and you do bad, you want credit for the good that you did. And God says, no, if you turn bad, you don't get it. Well, that's not fair, we might say, because I used to be good. Well, used to was doesn't mean a thing. What are you now? What are you now? What are you at the end of the judgment? 
not at the first, not in the middle. What are you at the end? That's what God is after. Because he says in here, if you change, if you turn around during that period of time that you have, everything will be okay. There again is a good reason for us not to fret and worry about our own past. What good does that do? If you were a sinner, and you're not now, and you've quit, you've got nothing to worry about. But we fret ourselves because we do not have faith in the sacrifice of Christ. It is a lack of faith to worry about 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's a lack of faith for yourself and for others whom you might condemn for what they did 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. As far as God's concerned, if somebody's changed from what they were, their sin is not to be mentioned even by them. So repent of your sins and move on from your sins. Don't, what good does it do to fret and worry about something you cannot change? It's already done. It may have been shameful, might have been iniquitous, but you can't change it. Christ can fix it. So have faith in Him that He has forgiven. And we've all got things that we could bring up and say, yeah, but I did this. Yeah, but I thought that. What good does that do? Christ says, oh, what are you, what are you talking about? I forgave that. I'm not going to mention that. Why do you bring it up? What's the point here? Now, maybe we need to go to God and ask for forgiveness for today. And if we forgot, maybe yesterday and the day before, or if we were in a bad attitude and we, we went through a, a downtime in our lives for a few days, weeks, or months, maybe we better be concerned about that and get on our knees and go to God and ask forgiveness for the lousy, rotten attitude I've had for the last two weeks, or whatever. But once... You do that, you move on. Isn't that the example that David gave us there in Psalm 51? It was over a period of time that he began to realize really what he had done. When he was in the midst of the, sin, the temptation, the lust, the sin, he kind of brushed that aside to do what he wanted to do. But then when Nathan came to him and said, you're the man, David, it washed over him. He, he suddenly realized what he had done. And he hadn't fully grasped it up to that point. You know, we can be self-righteous and we can be doing what we want to do. And we don't really consider the implications until it hits us somehow, some way from somebody or uh, an epiphany from God or, or something wakes us up to the attitude we've been in. So then we go to God as David did when he realized how evil what he had done was. He'd taken another man's wife, killed a man, and then nine months later, a child was born. And then David prayed 
And as soon as his son died, he got up and went on. He didn't sit around and mourn about it because God had given his answer. Kid's dead. Okay, get up, brush your teeth, comb your hair, have breakfast, get on with life. And it's the same thing he did in his prayer there in Psalm 51. He says, cleanse me, purge me with hyssop, make me clean and pure before you, correct me, get my attitude straight, then will I go and preach you and your truth and your God godliness to the great congregation. So he pressed forward toward the mark of the high calling of God, as Paul put it. He didn't spend the rest of his life bemoaning what he had done to Uriah and Bathsheba. It was part of his consciousness. He didn't want to go back there. He didn't want to repeat those sins. But he didn't live in the past. He moved forward. That's what God wants us to do. Recognize your sin. Repent of it. Have faith that it is forgiven. And move forward. What's unfair about that? <laughs> you know, that's a that's a beautiful scenario for any of us that we can go and have the blood of Christ shed for us as a continuing sacrifice. Because we all still sin and come short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean we're living a way of wickedness like he's speaking of here. We'll still make mistakes. We'll still sin. <clears throat> Change it and move on. So, where was I here? Let's pick it up in verse 26. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and dies in them. See, he doesn't repent, but he turns to sin and then dies while he's still in that mode. For his iniquity that he has done shall he die. The judgment... Judgment time is complete. Again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he has committed and does that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. So what's unfair about that? That's, that's for anybody. Because he thinks, he considers, he ponders, and turns away from all his transgressions that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Well, some would say that's unfair because they have the same attitude that uh, the son did in the story of the uh, prodigal son. Well, Dad, I've been here and I've been doing good all this time. And he went out and sinned and sinned and sinned and here I've been doing good. And you have a party for him. This isn't fair. This is exact attitude. This is unequal. This isn't fair. I've been good. Some of us might say, I never had any time in my life when I was really bad. I was, I was a good kid. I was a good teenager. Well, we better stop there. No. I was a good young adult. I was a good middle-aged. I was good in my whole life. I've always been a good person. I've never done this, 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 and that. And then here's somebody that's been a terrible sinner. Done everything that you've ever said don't do. And he says, I'm sorry, I won't do that anymore, and quits doing it. And you give him life eternal. What about the people that 
labored for two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, got the same pay. Well, we worked through the whole day. And these that came in the last hour, you give them the same amount of money we get, eternal life? Yeah. That's right. What do you got to complain about? You get eternal life too. He was bad. Now he's good. I like that. <laughs> I'm going to save him. You don't have to be righteous for 80 years. Now, if you are, so much the better. But if you aren't, and you get over your sin, God forgives, and you'll have eternal life. Now, what did he say? What did the father say to the prodigal's son's brother? I know you've been here. You've been faithful. You're going to get the rest of the inheritance. Everything's going to be good. You're going to be in charge. He would have higher standing after his dad died than the prodigal had. He was broke by then and penniless. He might have to work for his brother for wages from then on, while his brother would have the family farm and everything else. Now that's where position comes in. Eternal life is the basic reward for anyone, whether he lived righteously for 80 years or 5 years. But whether your first chair or 144,000th chair is a different matter entirely. One city, five cities, ten cities, so on. He says there's different rewards. So... Don't say it's unfair, because if you lived righteously for 80 years, then God's going to give you a higher reward, higher position. So, you'll be fine. But if you get in a bad attitude about it, you may not be there at all. You know? We can get self-righteous very, very easily, and that's really what that amounts to, is self-righteousness. I've been good. He considers and turns from his transgressions, he'll live. Verse 29, yet says the house of Israel, the way of the eternal is not equal. It's not fair. <clears throat> Why? Because they're sinning. The house of Israel generally, is that's their history, is sinning. So, hey, let's don't, let's don't talk about the righteous. Let's bless us even though we're sinners. Isn't that the way Protestantism teaches you? The law is done away. You can basically do anything you want, but you're going to be rewarded anyway. You're going to go to heaven. They don't like Ezekiel 18. O house of Israel, are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unfair? Now, this is the way it is. It doesn't matter what you think of it. This is, what it, this is the way it is. So, get in line with it. Verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the eternal God. Repent, and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. 
doesn't matter what you've been, get right. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Isn't that what David said in almost those exact words? Create in me a clean heart and a right spirit, O God. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You're going to say, I'm unfair in my judgments, and you're going to continue in your sins and die? You don't have to do that. Fix it. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies, says the eternal God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live you. Just fix it and move forward. Don't live in the past. If you spend a lot of time worrying about the past, it affects your present and future because it discourages you. It frustrates you. Dwelling on your sin keeps you from moving forward and growing and overcoming because you're stuck in your old sins and your old mode of thinking. Forget it. Move on. Have faith in the sacrifice of Christ. Will he find faith? Don't worry about yesterday. Worry about today and tomorrow. Now to chapter 19. Moreover, take you up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. So this is a lament. This is a sorrowful thing. What he's about to describe here is something that is dire. It's bad. It's wrong. It's hurtful. And it ends up in trouble. So a lamentation is a sadness. It's a mourning. For who? For the princes of Israel. doesn't say the king. Micah 4 says our king is dead. Our counselor has perished. Which I believe was Herbert Armstrong speaking on a church level. So this is princes. Those who were not the one ultimately in charge. But these are those who grew up underneath. These are... Uh, people in high office, let's say, the princes are not the king. Could you say this could be the body of evangelists or leading ministers or whatever underneath the king or the uh, one in charge? Now, it will apply as well to the nation, uh, as we shall see. <coughs> All these prophecies are dual. They apply to the church first, then to the nation. We'll see that what he says here has already pretty well happened to the church. So here's the lamentation, and here's what to say. What is your mother? Now in Hosea 1, uh, our mother is depicted as a harlot. We just read in Ezekiel 16 where the church and the nation is depicted as a harlot. Revelation 18 says that our nation is a harlot. And that we uh, must uh, remove ourselves from our mother, lest we be destroyed with her. And that is speaking there in Revelation 18, primarily of the nation, because the church by then is pretty well destroyed. <clears throat> so, what is your mother? Now, instead of a harlot here, he uses a different analogy. A lioness. What does a lioness do? Well, a lioness has babies. 
So it says, she lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps, her young ones, among young lions. So this is speaking of something that is fairly new. Uh, the work, end time work, began in 1926 and 27, and it has about 100 years to run, I think uh, is very clearly what the scriptures show. So, she is in that sense a young mother, and she lays down among those of her kind, and she has these young lions, baby lions. So she brought up one of her whelps, that is, she raised it, reared it. It became a young lion, not, not a whelp, not a pup, not a kitten anymore, but a young lion. And it learned to catch the prey, and lions do that. They have a natural prey, though, don't they? Antelope and various of the animals around them that they eat. That's their natural prey. But this learned to catch prey, and it devoured men. Oh, a lion that kills an antelope is looked upon as normal. A man-eater, a man-killer is not. And they have stories in Africa about man-killers. So here you have someone who comes up from our mother, the lioness, who as he grows up and becomes a young lion, he learned how to destroy or devour men. The nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit and they brought him with chains to the land of sin. Egypt is pictured as sin throughout Scripture. So here is one who grew up under its mother. The church is our mother. Here is a lioness. And was captured or taken into sin. Now, that probably is refer referring to Joseph de Koch, who was captured by Protestantism, who was captured by the sins and the ways of the world, and was taken there. Like he was chained. He couldn't get away. I mean, he grew up in Chicago, and he came to the mother, and supposedly grew up there, but he was still chained to Protestant and worldly and ungodly thought. He couldn't break free from that. So, what did he do? He took people from the church and destroyed them or devoured them spiritually by taking them back into sin, into Protestantism and the way of Satan's religions. Now, when she saw that she had waited, and her hope was lost. <laughs> the church sat back and watched, and they saw this young lion take people back to Protestantism. And some of us sat back and said, man, our hope is lost. What's going on here? What do we do? She took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. So she up-jerked, as they say in the south, or reared another one to be a young lion. And he went up and down among the lions. 
he became a young lion and learned to catch the prey and devoured men, just like his father, Joe Jr. Now, who devoured people spiritually in the church? I ask you. And he knew their desolate palaces, and he laid waste their cities, and the land was desolate in the fullness thereof by the noise of his roaring. Ranting, raving, screaming, preaching, telling us we all need to go back to Sunday and all that. Do we have desolate palaces? What about the house for God? What about the hall of administration? What about the gymnasium? What about all of those buildings in Pasadena and Big Sandy and Brickettwood, England? All gone. Became desolate. Became waste. Then the nations set against him on every side from the provinces and spread their net over him, taken in their pit, and they put him in ward or in captivity in chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into holes that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. So what happened when the Tekachas began to devour spiritually the people of the church and then they went into the world and became an evangelistic Protestant organization, what happened? The other evangelicals and the other Protestant churches didn't like them. They were not even accepted among their own. <laughs> were they? No. They were rejected by those that were already out there. Who needs you? You used to be Sabbath keepers. You used to be feast keepers. You weren't one of us. You're a Johnny-come-lately here, and we don't like how you look and smell. So what happened? They brought him into holes that his voice should no more be heard upon the mountains of Israel. Has the voice of Worldwide Church of God been quieted? Has it been stopped? I don't think they even have a broadcast of any kind anymore, do they? I, I don't know that for sure. But it certainly isn't. If there is anything that remains, it's not like it was when you could drive all the way across this country and never be out of hearing of the World Tomorrow broadcast. I've done it many times, many years ago. I could start on the West Coast, headed east, and there wasn't any place <clears throat> that I couldn't tune in the World Tomorrow broadcast. And once you reached the East Coast and started back west, it was the same way. It was everywhere. And now it is no more heard. It's gone. Dead. It says, your mother is like a vine in your blood, or who is kin to you, it says in the Hebrew, uh, of your family or of your likeness. Your mother is like a vine. Well, we just read, I just reviewed it briefly in Ezekiel 17 about how we grew as a vine, not as a tree. So he's continuing that analogy here. She's turned like a vine, even though she's your mother, she's kin to you, planted by the waters. Isn't that what we read in 17? She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. Good doctrine, she was fruitful, 
went around the world, produced fruit, new members all over the world. And she had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. So we had strong leaders under Herbert Armstrong. There were strong men who were evangelists that I used to look up to because they were strong leaders in speaking out for God and for the truth. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches, and she appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. So depicted partially as a vine here, and yet there was a certain amount of strength in the leadership. So it was kind of a combination of, where does it say, a vine tree somewhere back here. Kind of a vine and a tree commingled together. So there was some strength, and here it says that. But she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. So the trouble, the fire that broke out in the church consumed the leaders, turned them away. Now they're all basically dead except for one or two, maybe. I can't even think who those are at the moment, out of her her leaders. Plucked up in fury. Well, that's God's fury. Spewed out is one analogy in Revelation 3. Plucked up and dried out like you would a tree or a vine is this analogy. Speaking of the same thing. And notice now in verse 13, Now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. Now, that's what we read, and I reviewed that a little bit there at the end of Ezekiel 17, at the beginning here today, because God says He will take a twig and replant in place of the dry, dead tree and cause it to grow and flourish. That's the story, then, of the remnant coming to Zion and to Jerusalem and the two witnesses who will be there and building the temple and building the church, it will be fruitful. It will work. It will happen. Seven trees planted in the desert again, uh, Isaiah 41. So now, after being plucked up, drying up, and dying, Sardis, now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. So just as this destruction is finishing up in the church, God is going to plant something in the desert. Fire is gone out of the rod of her branches, which had devoured her fruit, so that she had no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. So he says the, the princes, this is a lamentation for the princes up here, remember verse 1? So here it's talking about the princes, those who were leaders underneath Herbert Armstrong, are being destroyed so that there are no longer strong rods to rule. There's, there's no one there. Isaiah 52, isn't it? Talks about how there is, her sons lie at the head of the street and there is no one among the sons that she produced who can lead her and guide her in the right ways of righteousness. These scriptures all fit together. So, who is there to go on? Here and there, one stands up and says, I'm the one, follow me. But he doesn't understand the Scriptures, and he doesn't know where to take them and where to lead them. 
So the strength and the leadership is gone. This is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. It's a sad situation that we find ourselves in. But God says He's going to plant and there will be something spring up in the wilderness and that He will use it to finish His work. So this chapter 19 is essentially the same as 17, except there it describes in detail the destruction of what was. Here it kind of summarizes it and uses the lion as a different analogy to produce the same thing. But he, he again brings in the vine and the tree because it's still speaking of the same thing. So it's, it's a mixed metaphor situation here in chapter 19. The analogy is of a lion or a lioness and her whelps, but it also gets back down to vines and trees and what God is producing. So he mixes the imagery together. It isn't always bad to mix your metaphors. <laughs> We're taught in English class not to do that, but God does sometimes. Now it's 2.07. We've got a long chapter coming up here. 49 verses. Uh, let, me, let me go back to Zechariah. Let's... let's uh, Drill this in just a little bit more. Zechariah 5. I went through this, of course, in the Minor Prophets series. But this comes right in the middle of Haggai and Zechariah in the story of the church being fed by the two anointed ones. And it tells the same story as Ezekiel 17 and 19 and Isaiah 41 and others. So he's been talking about the two feeding the whole church, all seven of them in chapter 4, and how they are the two that are mentioned in Revelation 11 as the final witnesses. They're right in the middle of this story, and the story of chapter 4 is picked up again and is continued at the end of chapter 6. We're speaking about the, two, the same two who will see eye to eye, and if they do what's right, there'll be peace between them, and they'll do the work of God, and so on. But inset between chapter 4 and chapter 6 is this other story. I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I said, I see a flying roll. Uh, that isn't a, a bun, it's a, a scroll, something that has things written on it. The length thereof is 20 cubits, and the breadth thereof 10 cubits. That's the same size as the tabernacle in the wilderness, I think I looked up. Then said he to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth, for every one that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. So the law of God was within the ark of the covenant and in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it's the law of God that cuts us off. The soul that sins, breaks the law, shall die. So he's saying that this scroll, or this writing, that Zechariah was seeing, would be the key to whether you live or die. The law of God. He said in verse 4, I'll bring it forth, says the Eternal of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house 
and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. <clears throat> so the thief, the lawbreaker, the sinful, is going to have his house come down. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. So he says the law of God is the standard. You follow it and you'll be okay. You don't follow it and you're going to die. So that is illustrated here. Where do you see the law of God being taught? In the church of God. You don't see it being taught in the world. They say it's all done away with. So the two witnesses are going to have the law of God and they're going to keep it and teach it, okay? That's the context here. So he says, now what do you see? What's coming? And I said, what is it? And he said, this is an ephah that goes forth. An ephah is like a, a basket that you have the crop in. So this is the harvest of God's people. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through the, all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Now, lead is very dense, heavy metal. Talent's about 120 pounds. So, when you look at a, an ephah, a basket, and you have 120 pounds of lead hit it, that's a fairly small basket with a very heavy weight dropped on it. So he took up a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. So a woman is depicted as the church. And we're talking about the church all the way through Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 6. So this is right in the middle of this. And he said, this is wickedness. So the church became wickedness and had a big chunk of lead dropped on it. He cast it in the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Didn't we just read that she would be silenced in the land, no more be heard? All right, this is dropped in the mouth. You get 120 pounds of lead dropped in your mouth, you don't say much after that. Then lifted up my eyes, and looked, and behold, there came out two women... And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, unclean birds. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, where do they take the ephah, the harvest, the church? He said to me, to build it an house in the land of Shinar, Babylon. And it shall be established and set there upon her own base. So what happened? Tkachis took the church back to Babylon and set it there upon its own base like it was still the church of God and even said, oh, you can go ahead and keep the feast if you want to. It's, it's okay. It's not sin. You don't need to because we got Christmas and Easter and all these wonderful things that you can keep, but... If you need to do that, it's okay. You can keep that foundation. You can keep that base. It's, okay. it's all right with us. Exact same thing it's saying here. Same thing we read in Ezekiel 17 and 19. It's just another analogy. And here, it's clear it's speaking of the church, right? Because it's right in the context of the two witnesses and the remnant. Now, 
referring back quickly then to Amos, I mean not to Amos, but to Ezekiel, where we just finished up. I went through that basically referring to the church, but I said it is a duality, and these all are. Now, I don't know, taking chapter 19, exactly what to say at this point of the nation, because our mother, in that sense, is our national government, is is our nation, our people. And the story is not all written yet. The story is here in that our nation is going to produce these young leaders, these lions that will learn to destroy men. Same story. It's going to be enacted right here in the nation. Now, I don't know that I can put the names on this yet because it's still in its embryonic form. It hasn't come to birth and to life yet. Whether it starts November 4th next Sabbath or not remains to be seen. I mean, it's already started, but it hasn't reached the crescendoing effect yet where everybody realizes everything's coming apart. It hasn't come to that point yet. Now, with the church, I can look back and see who led what and who destroyed what. We understood it was going to happen 20 years ago, and it got worse and worse and worse and happened. Now, we're watching the nation going through the exact same thing. So some of the so-called leaders or princes of our nation are going to do what they can to take this nation apart and devour men. This time we're talking about physical death. Total, not spiritual death, but physical death is going to occur within the nation. And it will be, the nation will be plucked up in fury and cast down to the ground and dried up and burned up. And there will be no one to rule among all those senators and House of Representatives and dignitaries that we have in Washington today. Some among them, maybe two in particular, will be able to look back on and say these were the ones that brought it down. Name some prominent senators that you know are destroying the nation from within today. And you might be getting pretty close to the truth. But which ones? Maybe we won't know until in retrospect when we can put names on what is about to happen. I know quite a few who are working within to destroy this nation right now, and there are a lot of them in Washington who are absolute communists. At least 80 I know on a, I've seen on a list of our congressmen and representatives, and there's probably more than that. So who will be the ones that learn to devour men and who lead the charge at destroying our people? Maybe we'll have to wait and see. So I'm not going to try to project names here. Just know that it's going to happen. It's already happened in the church, and we can now put names on it. Now it's going to happen in the nation, and we'll be able to put names on it. So be aware. Be awake. Be alert. And know that just as we've seen this this church destroyed, we're also going to see our nation destroyed. And it is imminent. It will not be long. We're already seeing the beginnings of it. It's just going to get worse. So, go to God. 
Repent, change, overcome, be righteous, and be saved. Why die? And come under the blood and the protection of Christ. If we do what's right from here on out, our salvation will be secured. That's all that matters. Let's not die, let's live. That's what God wants. And He'll help us to live. If we go to Him and cry out and ask Him to work salvation and to work righteousness in us, through His Spirit, He will so do, because that's what He wants anyway. He just wants us to come and say, Help me get there, Father, in the name of He who died for me. Meantime, we're going to see our nation come apart. Don't fear that. Fear God. That's the bottom line.